From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. As 2021 gets into full swing, Gator Nation is shifting its focus from football to basketball, with Mike White's team getting rolling in the SEC following the temporary pause in their season. But because of this odd pandemic year, there was still some 2020 business that needed to be conducted, specifically the awarding of the Heisman. On today's show, we'll convene FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry to discuss Kyle Trask's Heisman finish, the state of football following the Cotton Bowl, the first trio of SEC games for basketball, and the ongoing debate about Ohio State's inclusion in the college football playoff and what it means for the future of the sport. Then, gymnastics coach Jenny Rowland stops by to discuss the expectations facing the preseason number one team in the nation as they begin their unique 2021 journey this weekend. But first, the odds makers and experts had Kyle Trask as a long shot to win the Heisman prior to Tuesday night, and they were ultimately correct, as Alabama's Devontae Smith was the runaway winner. So to open our roundtable, we asked Scott and Chris their thoughts on the way the race shook out. Yeah, I think really it all played out kind of like we discussed on our last podcast, Adam. I mean, it all goes back for Kyle Trask to that LSU, the first half. Um, I think if Florida wins that game against LSU, uh, they could still have lost to Alabama and the way they did and him put up his numbers the way he did. And Kyle Trask could very well maybe have a Heisman Trophy, but the LSU loss obviously derailed that bid. And, you know, unfortunately, if you're going to have a bad game, he it just came at the worst possible time for him. And, you know, I, I look at him in the race. I mean, I was a little surprised he finished fourth. I would have had him second ahead of the other two quarterbacks because yeah. I think he I think he had the best season of any quarterback in the country but uh, I had no problem with Devontae Smith because when you look at college football in 2020 uh, there no one I mean as, as Gators opponents had no answer for Kyle Trask I mean Kyle Pitts trying to guard him Alabama fans or Alabama opponents certainly had no answer for Devontae Smith that includes the Gators and just watching him in that SEC championship game uh Guy's an electric player, uh, very deserving of the award. And uh, it would have been a great story for Kyle Trask to finish up with the Heisman Trophy. Regardless, it's still a great story. Uh, it just it goes back to first half LSU. Uh, that's really where his chances of winning it ended. What Alabama player did anyone have an answer for this year? Very true. Well, Najee Harris. Florida didn't have a – and you, no. could, you could put Najee Harris in the Heisman conversation. Oh, sure, yeah. Absolutely. Najee Harris's vote total seemed low relative to the performances he's had. That's true. I mean, but the way he finished the season was awfully strong. And I don't know, maybe he was a little late to the party. But with regard to Kyle Trask, I mean, a lot of the uproar about how where Kyle Trask finished is very regionally motivated. Again, yes, yes, we talked last week. On a first half of the LSU game really uh, submarined his chances 
uh, Kyle was really good against Alabama. And again, a lot of times it's a reflection of, of the overall product of the football team. It, for all we know, uh, people voting in Boise, Idaho and in Tucson, Arizona, it could be holding Florida's defense against Kyle Trask in the, uh, certainly the, the last two outcomes of the football game. So, or out two outcomes of the football season for Florida. Could have been holding holding that against him, and it's oftentimes a reflection of how well the, a team does. So uh, it, it didn't surprise me at all. That's where he finished. It certainly didn't take away from the season he had. It was an incredible year, and his his story was was really really good. If um, people are listening to this podcast didn't see the video that was put out, kind of like a, a an ode to Kyle that was done by the Gator Vision people. It was really really well done, narrated by Danny Werfel. Had a lot of cool video from Kyle Trask when he was a little kid, uh, when he was playing or not playing at Manville. <laughs> the few, <laughs> the few, uh, the few uh, times he did play, you know, he, he he finished as a Heisman finalist. That's a, that's a pretty good achievement for that kid, given where he was. Uh, I say this time a year ago, this time a year and a half ago, his his story had had not really uh, even begun to be written yet. So, uh, I think he's has some. He's got a future in front of him at the next level. And uh, in his resume and his bio and whatever uh, media guide he's in next year, uh, it'll say uh, fourth in the Heisman and they'll have his stats and his stats will be better than those quarterbacks who finish behind him. So uh, congratulations to him. Great season. There's certainly nothing to be ashamed about. And uh, as far as the uproar from Gator Nation, that's that's expected, but uh, not totally warranted in my opinion. In terms of being penalized for the, the way the season finished for Florida, obviously the Cotton Bowl did not factor into that. The voting was done before the game, even That's though right. it wasn't announced right. until after. Uh, but this is the first time that we've convened here since the Cotton Bowl. Uh, obviously, it, it did not go well for Florida, and it, it followed that trend we talked about the end of the year um, where the Gators just finished in a very different place than they were maybe, you know, a month ago, both uh, in terms of their record and, and the conversation around the team. And, and I guess that, that's where we should turn next, guys, because um, there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of smoke this time of the year, right? This is the silly season. Uh, you see stuff that just blows your mind. Like within, you know, a couple hours, uh, Tom Herman was Texas's coach for 2021, and then suddenly he wasn't and Steve Sarkeesian was. And that's the way things can happen in college football this time of year. Um, I'm just curious for overall you know, your take on where the Gators are at this moment. Not in the same position they were a month ago. Some changes we've already seen. Other changes possibly coming. Um, Scott, uh, help us here. What do we know? What do we not know as we sit here on uh, on Wednesday afternoon? Yeah, Adam. There, you know, the the loss to Oklahoma uh, certainly ended the season for Florida on a sour note. The, really, the three losses in a row, you know, they went from eight and one to eight and four. And anytime that happens, it's going to dampen some of the uh, momentum heading into the off season. But I, I think what you've seen with the Gators in the week or so since the Cotton Bowl is, you know, kind of an antsy fan base, which you're going to have when you finish such a promising season on that, on the, you know, on that note. But then the rumors about Dan Mullen potentially, uh, you know, have an interest in, in, in the NFL. And then, of course, you've seen some coaching news uh, with the Gators out there and uh, the fact that Ron English and Torian Gray, the, uh, the secondary coaches, are no longer uh, in the program. Fans want Todd Grantham fired. <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot swirling right now, Adam. So you know, it, it's just where we are. You're you're right. There is a lot of smoke at this time of year. Whether you call it the coaching carousel season, the silly season, 
And, you know, just I'm sitting on Twitter this morning, guys, and I'm looking at I don't know how he became the uh, the god of the transfer portal news. But Matt Zinitz, a reporter for, you know, Alabama AL.com. I mean, this guy's tweeting transfer portal news this morning like crazy. And, you know, another Gators in there, James Houston, which is not terribly surprising, but it's just that time of year. Evan McPherson uh, announces yesterday that he's going to the draft. So every day there's a little new tidbit around the Gators. Without question, the biggest one that has people talking to is Dan Mullen and, and potentially the NFL. And, you know, it, it, you could talk about this from a lot of different angles, I think, Adam, at this point. Uh, am I going to be surprised in three months if Dan Mullen is no longer here? I'll kind of be surprised, but at the same time, I've been around long enough to where I understand the business side of things. And if an opportunity coaching NFL was too good to pass up, there's only what 32 of those jobs, right? Yeah. Uh, and they pay very, very well. And coaches, especially the ones at the highest level, they're a little different kind of human beings than most of us. Uh, they, they, they like those challenges. So nothing ever surprises me about a football coach in the modern day. I don't think we're going to see any more Bobby Bounds and Joe Paternos who stay at schools for 30 years or whatever. That's just at that time has passed. And that's the topic that most people are talking about. And I can't sit here and say right now, you know, Dan Mullen until he reveals something. Uh, if he does, I think the law, I mean, he was at the Heisman ceremony with Kyle Trask uh, sitting up there with the stage. So he's obviously uh, going through the normal uh, routine right now as the head coach of the Florida Gators. And I just think, we're all just going to have to see how it plays. It could be all smoke. This is what his agent gets paid for. He's paid <laughs> very well for that. Uh, or, you know, it could be something damn Mullen, maybe inside his head. There, there's a reason that the opportunity maybe looks really good right now after three years at Florida. So just don't know the answer, but uh, I think we'll find some of those out in the next uh, few days. I think NFL is looking for good offensive coaches, and Dan Mullen is a really, really good offensive coach. Um, college coaches all crave to some degree how they can fare in the most intense challenges and everyone ha and, and it's whether or not you want to scratch that itch or not Steve Spurrier did Billy Donovan did not great results for Spurrier and he came back and said I guess I'm just a college coach college ball coach and you know he turned out to be pretty damn good and there's nothing wrong with that not great results for Nick Saban. I mean, yeah. think about that's that was a long time ago, but that really that's one of the highest profile. Nick Saban examples. was run out of the NFL or whatever, left the NFL at nine and seven with a nine mm -hmm. and seven record. You know, that's 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 hardly embarrassing by any stretch of the imagination. Billy Donovan could have maybe been, maybe maybe one of the five greatest college basketball coaches of all time had he decided just you know run it out of Florida. Instead, no, he wanted he wanted this challenge. So it's a different world up there, and Dan Mullen's never coaching it. In the NFL, I don't even think he has any NFL on his background. It's very different, mm. um, but that certainly doesn't mean he doesn't, he couldn't do it. It would have to be a an ideal fit. But uh, you know, those guys are going to listen to those offers. And like to, and to Scott's point, they're paid very very well. He mentioned Joe Paterno. I remember the Patriots went hard after Joe Paterno. Mm. Um, I want to say it was in the '80s, I think, and it just didn't happen. Just like Celtics went hard after Mike Shashevsky. Uh, the Clippers went hard after Mike Krzyzewski. You know, the, the, to Scott's point, also, this, those are probably the last of these guys that are, that are going to be around for a long, long time in that kind of situation. But, uh, you know, you listen to offers. Spurrier used to say, I'm, God knows when I was a beat writer for the Gators, how many January stories I had to write about Spurrier being 
interest from the Saints, from the Cardinals, from the Carolina Panthers. Uh, there were all kinds until, until they finally came to fruition. But he threw down, it was in 2000, the January 2002, when he said, I'm quitting, I want an NFL job. And then mm-hmm. he became a big-time free agent on that front. Uh, the Bucks were another one, obviously, that he was that he was uh, attached to. But you know, until I see something harder, there's a team. Uh, you know, is it the Jets? Is it the Chargers? Uh, Jaguars, the, Tex- the Texans, the Jaguars. The, until I see some something a little harder with it, instead of uh, names being thrown out, I just kind of sit back and Black Monday is always fascinating in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're still dealing with the fallout of that. So there's obviously still a lot happening with football. Uh, we will stay on top of it as we go week by week here, but we also are excited to turn our attention more over to Gator basketball. Uh, and, and Chris, you know, before Tuesday night's game at Alabama, the Gators were, were riding really high. And so, you know, we're going to talk about Alabama, but I, I do think it's important to talk about what came before uh, and the way that Florida started SEC play and just yeah, you know, how inspired they were. I know you wrote a story about the way this team just kind of lifted itself up from you know from zero. They had basically grinded to a screeching halt the entire program. They got it revved back up, and you know they had a, a couple of really impressive performances to to start conference play. Yeah, fifteen days they took off, or they didn't weren't on the court together for fifteen days, and they did basically did kind of shut down things for the holidays and came back and uh, they weren't very good at practice their first three practices back but uh the second the second day of practice i think was a monday it, it two on sunday two on monday i think and they go to nashville on tuesday and 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 played wednesday uh wednesday night and played really really well against vanderbilt now you we can talk about how good vanderbilt is they uh you know, they came a couple seconds from beating Kentucky uh, uh, went, uh, Tuesday night, and we talk about whether Kentucky's any good. Yeah, we will pretty soon because considering that's who the Gators play this weekend. Uh, but you, you, we know Kentucky has talent, and but Florida went to Nashville and won by uh, I think it was 19 points, and came home and you know had a really good game against uh, uh, LSU. And in both those games, the biggest factor of the game was Colin Castleton inside the 6'10 transfer from Michigan. Um, I want to say I think he hit 18 to 23 shots in two games. He was co-player of the week. Uh, in the SEC, he's given them a real legitimate, um, you know, low post threat. He's he's got, he's long, better athlete than you probably think he is. Got a little bit of, um, got a, got a little bit of edge to him. He's got some grit. He's he got does. Some grit. He yeah. does. He's not perfect, uh, but that's okay. But to your point that you made, um, the Gators, on the whole, talked about um, gratitude and a, about being back together. And about having Keontae with them there on the sidelines, which was a big deal. Um, having him in the gym, having him talking to them and not having to worry about uh, what was going on with him. Because that, you know, it's it just basketball meant nothing to these guys for a few days while they were wondering uh, about the serious health condition of their, of, their, of their teammate who they love. Now they're able to think about what to do on the court. Now, they played well those two games. They didn't play great at Alabama. Um, they were okay for until a twenty to four run, about four minutes into the uh, second half, kind of whacked them upside the head, and then they're playing catch up behind that. But Alabama was uh, quicker to the balls. Both Mike White and Trey Mann afterwards said they played Alabama played harder. That's a bad sign, but, but that's also fixable. Um, there were fundamental breakdowns in terms of boxing out, in terms of losing your man in rotation. Um, it's some blow buys on defense that, you know, hadn't happened a whole bunch so far this year, but having said all that, let's give credit a little bit to the Crimson Tide who just three days earlier went to Knoxville and Tennessee was number seven in the country 
their preseason favorites to win the league. They punked them up there. Uh, they punked them by shooting 10 of 20 from the three-point line. Uh, they Alabama, well, I think, 9 of 20 uh, in this particular game. But they got a bunch of different guys. They're a hard team to defend. They got they, they got they can shoot threes from all five positions. And you know it's not uh, it's not a terrible loss by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Florida can after taking Wednesday off, will come back Thursday, and they'll 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 use that as a barometer to get better with Kentucky coming in for a 5 p.m. Saturday game. You know we know, like we said we know Kentucky has talent. They may have started off uh, one and six, but they've started off two and zero oh in the SEC. They won at Mississippi State. They won at home against Vanderbilt on a last-second shot. Both teams will have each other's attention in a lot of ways. Maybe an early loss at Alabama, uh, you know, can straighten Florida out. If Florida's thinking they had some things figured out, they know now they don't. But they got to get back to playing harder than the other team because without Keontae Johnson, they're going to be undermanned in a lot in, in the front court and and on the perimeter and in transition defense and on the glass and stuff. There's stuff that other guys have to step up and do for them and. Uh, Maybe that the way they lost uh, Tuesday night will be a reminder to everybody that they, they just they just have to be better, more on point, and play harder than they did the other day. In in terms of you know moving forward without Keontae Johnson, I mean through three games, how much does Florida look like what you think they need to look like to be successful without him on the floor, and how much of that is still um, you know to be figured out by by the coaches? Well, uh, some of the killed them against Alabama uh, two, uh, four minutes into uh, the game. Scotty Lewis is on the bench uh, with two fouls for the rest of the half. Three minutes into the second half, he's on the bench again with the game tied, and that's when uh, Alabama went on their 20-4 to run. They, they have a problem right now with fouling too much. That has to stop, and it's something that they talk about constantly. Uh, they, they intentionally uh, blow whistles and call practices much closer than probably – most teams would in practice because it's such a problem mm-hmm. and and you foul too much you run too much in practice so uh it, it's it's something that has to be corrected um it's an issue i don't know the 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 less they foul and they didn't foul a whole bunch they were much better at it in the second half of the lsu game than they were in the first half of the lsu game when javante smart was blown past them even when a guy beats you up the dribble don't foul him you know mm-hmm. at some point expect help maybe from the weak side or let him go uh, and then live to play the next possession. Uh, don't put yourself in harm's way and, and buy yourself some time on the bench because Florida's not going to be uh, a, the best team they can be if Scotty Lewis is over there sitting and going one for six from the floor and only playing, uh, I believe, uh, seven minutes of the first 30 of a game. That's not a recipe for success. And he was playing really, really well the last three games heading into that Alabama game. So I th- think knowing him, He'll take this at a, as a, at a motivational charge and try to be a lot better against uh, against Kentucky this week. Yeah, Florida versus Kentucky. There's not a lot of chances to get Kentucky, quote-unquote. Um, this would seem to be one of them, although, as you noted, a good start in the SEC. But overall, we know that uh, they haven't gelled nearly as well as, as some other John Calipari teams at this stage of the season. But we also know that's subject to change because yes. we know they got guys – they, I think they had the number one or number two recruiting class in the country. He's taking some measures there to try to get their attention with a little more discipline. So what they're doing there, uh, it's just expect Kentucky to come in and be a pretty good team on Saturday. I, I, and I know that's what Mike White's going to tell his guys. Whether or not Florida does get Kentucky this time around, we'll find out on Saturday. Um, we'll find out on Monday 
supposed to find out Monday who wins the national championship. There's there's some rumblings. There's some of that smoke we were talking about. There may be a delay at the moment. They're saying game is going on as scheduled on Monday. Um, but it's obviously going to be Alabama. It's going to be Ohio State who just clobbered Clemson um, and, and opened up an, an interesting kind of uh, sub-thread to the conversation about whether or not Ohio State deserved to be in the playoff. And it was basically what, what Dabo Sweeney's point was, which I, I don't know that he's wrong when he said Ohio State is clearly a very talented team. They could beat anybody. They beat us. But ranking them where I did was a reflection of I just don't think they played enough games to deserve to be there. And my question for you guys in this PAT is, does Ohio State's performance justify their inclusion or is it a separate conversation to say they were certainly good enough to be there and they proved that, but that doesn't mean that they deserved to be there with their resume and what they actually did on the field? The Big Ten set their rules before the season started. Well, then they then they changed them. <laughs> right. Yeah. And who was that? Who were they changing it for? Ohio State. There's, there's no doubt about it. Now, I agree with Dabo Sweeney, okay? And, and on just about across the board. I mean, well, how many games did they end up playing? Five? Well, six, including the championship. They were 6-0 and when they were selected to go to the playoff. Right, and and you were supposed to play how many games to get to the championship game? I believe it was six, yeah. And they had only played five. Correct. That's right. So by rights, or by according to their initial rules, they, they shouldn't have been eligible to play that. Whether or not they're a great team, is this is these are two different conversations, Adam. I think you probably agree with that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I, and the fact that they beat the hell out of Clemson, I don't necessarily think that justifies what the per, what the rules were from the beginning. Are, are they a great team? Yes, I, I have I have no doubt. If they if they had played out the season, hell, they may have been a twelve and zero football team. Mm-hmm. But under these weird rules that we set up for this weird uh, uh, unique situation, they didn't fit. They didn't qualify. So they started rearranging the the, the deck chairs to get them where they needed to be and. You know, good for them the way they played. Justin Fields was fabulous. That was one yeah. of the great and heroic performances of the of the college football season. But I mean, I, the NCAA tournament is filled with a bunch of of, of stories. Um, Switch of sports here about uh, this team didn't get in. This team didn't deserve to be in the NCAA tournament. But but then they win. You know, they get to the Sweet Sixteen and Elite Eight, uh, uh, like a Syracuse a couple years ago. And Jim Beheim saying, see, this shows that we deserve to be in them. Well, just because you played well once you got in doesn't mean you deserve to be there. Mm-hmm. Okay. But having said all that, uh, what Justin Fields did was amazing. What that team did was amazing. Uh, Clemson was uh, outclassed on, on the field. And uh, I may be wrong in, in, in this, but I, I just think that the ground rules were set and you changed them to benefit a team. And something doesn't sit well with me. But then again, what about 2020 sits well with anybody right now? I agree with Chris, which is how you know we're living in a strange time. But I want to give uh, a little caveat here, Scott, before I turn over the floor, is that the committee will tell you and the ones who you know follow what they do in their directives, their job is to pick the four best teams. Now, a lot of us feel like it's the most deserving but by their metric, they're there to pick the four best teams. And does that change the calculus? So I'm sorry to make it a harder question for you now, but I think that's also what the, the other side would be to what Chris just said. Well, uh, I mean, there, yeah, there's, I think this is definitely a multi 
multi-pronged topic. Uh, you can look at it from a lot of different angles. Um, if their measurement is the best team, I would I, I would have been okay, I think, with Ohio State in there. But if I had been that room, I would have lobbied for Cincinnati over Ohio State. Mm-hmm. And my point would have been that I think they served the integrity of the system better in 2020 than Ohio State did. You know, when you look at this whole debate, I mean, unlike Chris, I agree really at the core of what Dabo Swinney was saying because I think it goes back to really the integrity of the system. And, and you know, even Dan Mullen showed some frustration through the years. He, he veiled his comments, but you knew he was talking about Ohio State a couple of times during the season. If I was the head football coach uh, and I was working hard to get nine, ten games in and I was fighting for four playoff spots, I would be upset too. So those, those guys have very valid points. I know Davos Sweeney is kind of a favorite punching bag right now. Uh, but in this case, like, I see where he's coming from. Again, I never doubted that Ohio State had a – they didn't have a chance against Clemson, just like it will not surprise me in the least if they win Monday night. Mm-hmm. If they do beat Alabama, I will not be surprised. But I do think they are almost deserving of an asterisk because, again, uh, the, the leaders of the sport in the conference conferences, they made some decisions that – I think really hurt the integrity of sport. I think it's why you're going to, you got so much debate right now on how college football is getting ready to change. And it is truly getting ready to change Mm -hmm. because the bowl system itself is, is a failure where we are right now. They're going to have to expand the playoffs. So if you have a situation, knock on wood, let's hope we don't ever have a COVID season again. But Mm -hmm. if we do, and you got a six win Ohio state team and you want to justify their existence, Put them down as a lower seed and let them fight their way there a little tougher than yeah. just giving them one of those top four seeds. So we're going to see expanded playoffs probably sooner than we were going to prior to 2020. We're going to see a reshuffling of the bowl system. ESPN's got a lot of money involved. Advertisers have a lot of money involved. Schools have a lot of money involved. These cities that host these events are losing money. So I think it's overdue in some ways. And you know, it, it's a great game. It's one that I, I love history. And I, I'm going back. You, Chris has done it too. You can go back and read a newspaper story in 1970 about college football. And so many of the issues that they were talking about 50 years ago, they're talking about today. <laughs> and I think it's gotten better. I just hope that one day this debate is not raging as much as it has because I, I would be upset too if I was Dabo Swinney or Dan Mullen or – you know, if Nick Saban, they lose to Ohio State, you know what I mean? He's not going to say anything, but hey, you know, you got to think, man, I played 12 games. They played seven. And I, I don't know if you guys saw my tweet the other night, but it was funny. I just found it. I was, uh, so if Ohio State does win a national title, they'll be the first national champion crowned in college football in single-digit win total. by And I'm not, I'm not talking about just any like AP or coaches pull with any national titles. Do you, you guys have any idea who the last one would have been? Probably Alabama. Army in 1907 <laughs> or something. Chris, the 1985 Gators were crowned national champion by the Sagarin ratings. They were 9-1-1. <laughs> one one. No, I, 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 I thought you were talking about a legitimate. <laughs> legitimate. Legitimate, you have to go back to 1966, the uh, Michigan State, wow. Notre Dame. Notre Dame was 9-0-1, tied Michigan State. But Notre Dame was the last – official national champion of college football 
to finish the season with single-digit win total. So if Ohio State finishes 8-0 as national champion, they'll, they'll make some history that we haven't seen in, well, since I was alive. Uh, times are changing in college athletics, especially in college football, and that is why we have this podcast to make sure we're staying on top of it and how it affects the Gators as well. Uh, as always, make sure to check out FloridaGators.com to see the latest content from both Scott and Chris. You can follow him on Twitter at GatorsScott, at GatorsChris, and certainly uh, the more pressing uh, of those handles right now is with Chris. He's following Gator basketball uh, as they try and get back up and, and beat Kentucky this weekend at home. So, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much as always. We will talk to you next week. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Adam. Among the teams aggrieved by the abrupt ending of the athletic season this past spring, few had as strong of a case as Florida gymnastics. The undefeated SEC champions were ranked second in the nation and about to enter the postseason when the sports world stopped turning with hopes of a national title suddenly dashed. Now entering this season with renewed vigor and sky-high expectations, we spoke to Coach Jenny Rowland about how they moved on from 2020 and turned the page to 2021. For the most part, they're able to look back at last season and really have a sense of accomplishment and can really pat themselves on the back and go, you know what, we did everything we could to the best of our ability. It was an undefeated season and we we can be proud of that. Um, it wasn't exactly how anybody wanted it to, to be to finish by any means. Uh, however, I think uh, to this day, um, there's a great sense of gratitude to where we are today and the ability that has been provided to us. Um, you know, this opportunity that UF and the UF Health and everybody, you know, has gotten the Gators uh, to be put in a position to have a season and uh, to compete. That's that's what we love to do is compete to bring joy to people. And um, I think it's just pretty much come full circle and really appreciating the moments that we have. It's interesting when you talk about the role that a coach plays because I think people so often just look at it as okay, you're you know, you're, you're directing this, you're directing that, but in a lot of ways, you're also, um, you know, you're you're a, a counselor of sorts for these athletes who, especially at this time of their lives, who come there and entrust you with helping them build for the future. And as you worked with the athletes, I'm curious in particular about the seniors from that team because. I guess it's easier if you're an underclassman to say, okay, well, this didn't end the way we wanted, but we'll come back next year and, and we're going to go and win that championship that we thought we would do this year. We'll do it next year. For the seniors who didn't have that chance, how difficult was that for you to sort of talk them through, thank you so much for everything you gave us, and I'm, I'm just so sorry we can't finish it the, the way that we wanted to? It's very difficult as a leader and not knowing what's happening, so not know how to lead myself you know, through this time period, uh, it was very challenging. Um, I, I won't lie <laughs> at all. Um, no, it was, it was very emotional and it was just hard because there didn't seem to be any sort of closure. Mm -hmm. Um, we are hoping to, you know, have a little bit of that, um, our first meet out this year. We're honoring uh, and having our senior night for our seniors from last season. I am hopeful that that will allow a little bit of closure for them, um, inviting them and seeing a few of them at our ring ceremony for our SEC championship ring ceremony was really great to see. 
Um, but really, in my thought, in my mind, uh, once you're a gator, you're always a gator. So um, there is never really an ending here at the University of Florida. Um, so really, it's just a continua continuation of what their life is and knowing them knowing that uh, they still have a family here waiting for them when they're ready to come back. You know, big picture, 2020 was a year that we expect to be talking a lot about gymnastics, especially in the summer, being an Olympic year. And it's such a unique sport in that there's a really tight window for when gymnasts can be at that national level and, and be at their absolute best. Uh, I'm just curious, kind of on the, the macro level, as tied into the world of, of international gymnastics as you are, the impact that this has had on the sport itself and what it means for, for this year with trying to make the, the 2021 Olympics now happen. It's been very challenging and difficult, I would imagine, for all of those uh, athletes. Uh, there are athletes who weren't even prepared to have an opportunity to compete in the Olympics this year. Um, so you've, you've got both you've got both sides. You've got those younger athletes who were not originally age eligible, who are now. Um, and then you've got those athletes who thought, this is my last year, you know, I've peaked. Um, and they're navigating their way through uh, another season. I don't know, you can look at it both both ways. You know, that quarantine period may uh, have done some good for the, the student athletes, um, you know, physically, you know, healing up any, you know, little nagging injuries on the flip side, you know, coming back to the level that they are, it's gotta be a, a bit of a slower process. Um, it was definitely a slower process for our team um, in returning and getting them ready in season. Um, I think just the idea and knowing that there's a goal, there's an end date now, um, it's going to happen is always helpful and helps with that motivation piece for them. You talked about the, that quarantine period. And I remember that that's when we spoke back, I think it was in, in April we talked about that. Um, so many teams had to get creative, right, with ways to stay connected, to stay on track during that this past off season. What methods did you use to make sure that your team stayed engaged both mentally and physically through a, an unprecedented time? I think we tried to create some consistency throughout the quarantine period, just some normalcy of, of meeting as a team, whether it be once or twice a week at the same time, just so everybody had something to look forward to. Um, really putting it in the hands of the team. Um, they also did a lot of uh, meetings on their own, uh, led by our seniors um, in our junior class. So really uh, allowing them to take that initiative and um, you know form those bonds you know, to the best of their ability and be creative in that way um, as well. So really, you know, just trying to provide a little consistency, a little normalcy for them um, was really was really the goal. Yeah, I remember hearing during that period about lots of uh, lots of things athletes were doing to stay in shape physically. And if you're, you know, if you're if you're a football player, you could get out and you could throw, you could run routes, right? Well, in your sport. Uh, it's it's hard to do that stuff at home, right? <laughs> Most people don't have their their home gym does not have a beam, does not have bars. Um, I'm just curious what kind of creative things your athletes had to do for long periods where they couldn't get in the gym, but obviously needed to to maintain those skill sets. Was there anything? I mean, were they maybe laying down tape and making that a beam. I'm, I'm just curious what what options they had. Really, uh, very few options. Um, I'd say the the athletes 
that we train, most of them don't have beams. They don't have bars. Uh, some of the younger kids that do uh, gymnastics, they'll probably have a play beam or a bar or something in their home. Um, once you get to this age, I'd say it's it's not often that you'll see a piece of equipment in um, one of our student athletes' homes. <laughs> However, um, they did a good job. They they zoomed each other. They did a lot of hit workouts. They did a lot of app workouts. Really, just keeping their body as physically fit as possible. Handstands against the wall. I know that was a very popular <laughs> popular uh, choice, um, but really. Um, there, there wasn't a, a lot of opportunity for most of our athletes. Um, several of our athletes were in areas of the country where, you know, they couldn't even leave their homes. Mm -hmm. So really, you know, just um, trying to keep the mind fresh, trying to keep the mind sharp, the, the body as sharp as possible with a lot of great Nike app workouts. You know, those, mm -hmm. uh, those were a big hit. Yoga workouts, um, they, those were a big hit for our team this summer. So last season, you were named both SEC and National Coach of the Year. Uh, I'm curious, in what ways you think you've grown and evolved the most as a coach during your time leading the Gators, culminating in, in those, those incredible honors? Oh, wow. Definitely not the same person I was five years ago when I first stepped into this position, much less a year ago. Really, really thankful and grateful for that opportunity to have been selected uh, for such an honor, especially being named, you know, based off of um, my peers. But really, I mean, day in and day out, I, I try to learn something new every day. I try to help myself get better every day in addition to helping, you know, my student athletes learn something, gain knowledge, uh, grow every day. And really, that's just something that I'm very, I'm very committed to continuing to do in my lifetime, uh, not only as a human being, but um, as a coach as well. And I'm sure that, you know, some of the things you've learned help you deal with expectations. And uh, this team has very high expectations, number one team in the country preseason. How do you manage those and make sure they don't become too intimidating or, or become a barrier to your success as you begin this year? Yeah, we, we talk about expectations a lot. And um, I always tell our student athletes that expectations are high, but they're definitely not unrealistic. Um, really just being mindful um, as a student, as a student athlete, um, and taking care of yourself so that whatever you're doing for yourself is really in turn the best thing for your team. You're helping your team out. So really, that's one of the, the, the things that we try to focus on day in and day out. In terms of the, the gymnasts that you have that are going to hopefully help you attain that number one ranking as you go forward, uh, obviously, most people, even casual fans, know about Trinity Thomas. What, what are her expectations going into this year? And what are yours for her as you try and help her be the, the very best that she can be? I would say my expectations for her are no different than any of my other student athletes, really enjoying the moment, uh, enjoying the, the opportunities that you have to be a part of a team and a family. And it's, it's something that's very special. That's only, you know, typically four years of your entire lifetime. In four years, that will be some of the most memorable years of your entire life. So really to make the most of that, uh, Trinity does a great job of that. And 
coming in day in and day out and making the most of all the opportunities that are presented to her. Um, she's really grown over these last two years into a, an exceptional team leader. And uh, I know her, her expectations of herself are really high. You know, um, she not only wants to, you know, have a, a successful NCAA career, but um, she has her eye set on uh, competing in the Olympic trials as well. So, um, you know, she's training in the gym, all uh, NCAA routines, and then adding, always adding, you know, a, a little bit more at the end of each uh, uh, event on a daily basis. She's just one All-American. You have lots of All-Americans that are returning. Uh, what can you tell us about the, the rest of this team, some other names that fans should be looking for, maybe especially people that have made some, some big improvements and some leaps from last year to this year? Well, um, our three seniors, um, I'm, I'm really excited to see them, you know, have this, have this opportunity to, to showcase, you know, their love, their joy, their passion for the sport. Uh, it definitely has filtered down into their team and they've, they've shown this team, you know, that it is possible to work hard, to train smart and to be successful. And I know that uh, this year they're they're going to have that success. Um, I'd say our our junior class, probably more than anybody, just because it's our largest class, uh, has definitely grown the most um, in leadership and development and confidence. Um, so you know, alongside Trinity, you've you've got uh, Savannah, you've got Nia Reed. Um, I'd say you know those those athletes are just chomping at the bit to get in more than what they had originally competed last year. Um, our sophomore Peyton uh, could potentially be in an all arounder for us again. And then our freshman class really um, we, we have four newbies and um, one that I, I see in the all around, hopefully on a consistent basis here pretty soon. Um, really, all four of them should have opportunities to get lots of experience this year. Uh, but in all reality, I mean, this year, I can't compare it to any other year we've ever had before. And just really proud that this team has been able to come together you know, find this common passion, this desire amidst a lot of uncertainty today, and just go out there and be able to compete as a family, compete as a team uh, for each other. And um, you can, I, I, I hope that all the fans can definitely, they'll, they'll be able to see that out on the competition floor, that how, how tight this team is, you know, amidst you know, our, our social distancing uh, protocols and, um, you know, given given a little, still a little bit of uncertainty. Hmm. And a couple of final things for you. I am curious with your sport. So much of it is about that performance element, right? And you know, when you fill the O dome and the fans are going crazy, um, that's obviously not possible this year. And given what a big component that is of the sport and the energy that that creates for the team. How does that play out this year? How much different do you imagine this will be? And how do you how do you account for those changes? We we've definitely talked about that as a team, and it is going to be different. It's going to sound different. It's going to look different. Hopefully, not at home. You know, our whoever will be attending and whatever that the max capacity is. I know they will bring great energy for this team. Um, however, uh, it's it's definitely something that we 
you know, talk about day in and day out. And really, you know, bottom line is it shouldn't affect anything. We can only control what we can control. The, the audience is an uncontrollable factor for us. And that's something that we keep talking and it's up to us to rally and to find it's not that deep down. It's there, you know, the excitement and the joy of doing something that, that they love. Uh, so it shouldn't be it shouldn't be too challenging. Final question for you. Uh, the schedule this year is different. It's all SEC opponents like multiple other sports have done. Um, and I guess in one of the wrinkles of just how weird this year is, you open this week against Auburn, uh, but it is not part of your SEC schedule, despite being an SEC opponent, which seems just perfectly, perfectly 2020, 2021, sort of there on the nose. As you get ready to, to run out on the floor for the first time, what do you hope to see this weekend from your team as you, you start this very strange journey this season? As always, I just want to see this team, which they do in the gym, they show in the gym, just come together, make the most of an opportunity that is presented to them. It's been a really long time since these athletes have competed. There's probably, I would only imagine, a little more nervous energy, a little more anxiety, but uh, bottom line, uh, the preparation is there. Um, this team is ready to start competing. I wouldn't say we're peaked by any means. Uh, however, we're, we're ready to start competing and get those little kinks worked out, really supporting each other, lifting each other up and knowing that we're all there for each other and going through this together, um, to see the smiles and the joys on their faces. That means everything to me. Well, Jay, I know it's going to be a huge relief to get out there, start competing again for the first time in a while. Uh, we wish you a lot of luck with your team, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Go Gators. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Until next week, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe and go Gators.